Beyond the Books is a podcast from the School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures at the University of Edinburgh that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at research and the people who make it happen. I'm Ellen, your host, a PhD student in French and Francophone Studies, and this is our very first episode recorded from lockdown via Skype, featuring David Farrier, who is a senior lecturer in English Literature and a researcher in the environmental humanities. He's also the author of Footprints in Search of Future Fossils, a brand new book on the deep future that you'll hear us mention in this episode. David was a fascinating guest and it was an absolute pleasure to have him on. I hope you'll enjoy this chat as much as I did. A couple of trigger warnings before we get into the episode. We do go into quite a lot of detail about the impact of COVID-19 and surrounding issues of racism and classism that have emerged as a result of this pandemic. If this is something you're struggling with at the moment, discretion and self-care is advised. As always, the views expressed are our own and not necessarily indicative of those of the school as a whole. So, as always, be safe, all of you, and above all, be well. Enjoy the episode. Thank you. We're kicking off all of our interviews just with the same question, fairly basic one. How are you? Um, it might sound trivial, but I think it's an important question to ask. Um, no, it's, it is a, a, a really important question to ask, and I'm fine, thanks very much. Um, we, we've been in lockdown a little bit longer than, than most because uh, we decided to quarantine about a week before every, uh, the rest of the country uh, because my wife had some symptoms that seemed a bit suspicious um, oh, I'm so sorry oh, no, it was it was relatively mild although it is taking a long time to get over and and the rest of us have been fine so okay um I mean the purpose of this podcast originally before COVID-19 happened and before I got locked out of the studio um was to move beyond the books um and by that we meant to sort of explore different methodologies different ways of working and that feels like it's suddenly become very normal um, for all of us in just in the space of, you know, a week or fortnight, as as you said. What have been the main challenges of the new normal working setup for you? Or have there been any benefits? One of the challenges is the same as one of the benefits in that, in the, you know, for us as a family in, in my house, we are all together at the moment, which... Mm is a great thing you know it's in that you know we're getting to spend time with one one another uh, we're freed in to an, to an extent from um some of the demands of, of daily life and there's been a lot it, it's it's a, a a blessing to be close to the people that that uh, that you love at a time like this because of course that's not true for everyone yeah um, and it's a blessing to have a home where we all feel safe, which again is not true for anyone, and it's, it's heartbreaking to think of that being the case. Um, but you know, our home is now—it's uh, our home, but it's—it's a—it's a school. Mm-hmm. When school was was on, and this is the last day of the summer holiday. Uh, sorry, the Easter holidays at the moment. Uh, and it's a it's a, a workplace for me and my wife, and uh, you know, so. Um, a lot of things have been crammed in <laughs> yeah. to this space, which is challenging. I was, you know, I think sometimes it's hard to know quite what you should be doing at any given moment. You know, should I be being a parent or a school you know, kind of substitute teacher? It's a really helpful thing to to put out there because yeah. I'm sure a lot of parents are thinking that. Yeah, no, I think we 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 have set a low bar in this house. Good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um. It was interesting what you were saying about um, 
academic work kind of being or having to fit into the same space as everything else um because I think there's a lot of conversations we could have about invisible work in academia about having to fit workloads around family life and how that's difficult in the best of circumstances let alone you know in the middle of a global pandemic um but I think conversely it does also it's a shift in how universities are being run and I'm thinking about students and members of staff um with maybe accessibility issues with caring commitments that haven't always been you know possible or protected by traditional academic setups and just I was just wondering what you maybe thought what were some improvements we could take from this or some lessons that as an institution we could learn from the work from home setup well I mean you're absolutely right to say that um the caring responsibilities that many people have are suddenly much more visible Mm. Uh, than they, they they might otherwise have been and that can only be a good thing I think of, of course um, it's important how academic culture responds to that but that increased visibility is is really important um, and I, I think the, the one of the advantages perhaps of, of lockdown or a benefit that we can take away is it really has um, illustrated that point that you know I think a lot of people have made particularly it was it was made a lot during the most recent round of industrial action that the university is not the buildings um the university is the people it's the it's the staff of of all kinds and and the students that make the university and that's really what we've been left with I mean the building we're, we're locked out you know we are um you know the, the only infrastructure that we've really got uh, you know is online and and really that is is really just a manifestation of of, of the interpersonal connections that um, really are the 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 essence of, of the university. So I mean I hope um, that uh, that might be the basis for where we go next. You know when we mm. when we um, when we when we reconvene. questions about your research um one that's a bit more pandemic related and one that's a bit broader um the first is about your book which was recently published so congratulations on that first of all um the book is footprints in search of future fossils um and it explores what traces of present societies will persist in the deep future and it was one of the first publications within our LLC community to have a virtual book launch at Blackwell's. Um, how did you find that experience? How was it? Uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, it was a way to cope with the disappointment of my physical book launch being cancelled, to be honest. <laughs> it, uh, it was meant to happen the day after we decided to, as a family to go into lockdown. Um, right. But actually, I had decided the, over the, the weekend to that I really had to call it off it, it just mm. seemed um inappropriate to gather people even this you know the relatively small number that would be at a book launch um so I, you know, I was feeling a bit down <laughs> and and yeah. missing the, the the opportunity to kind of celebrate with you know with, with friends um uh, but also to kind of mark its presence in the world you know when you produce 
uh, a piece of work that's taken a long time. Yep. You live with it in your head for a while and it's good to feel that it is a, a physical thing, but it's out there in other people's hands. Yep. So the book launch was, you know, um, the virtual book launch that I did a few days later, to be honest, was just me wanting to, to divert my energy somewhere. Having said that, it was great. Um, I really enjoyed it. And it and it was good to have an opportunity to be a bit more creative, perhaps, with, with these things. So I tried to replicate, you know, the, the, the conventional book launch. I, I recorded a few readings um, and posted them. And, um, you know, I posted links to where people could get a signed copy of the book Um you know, if they happen to want one, uh, there were questions and conversations happening. But I also um, like on 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 um, on threads on, on Twitter. But I also um, put up a deep time reading list. So, but which was not something I think I could have done really um, uh, if it had been a physical launch. But it was nice to sort of give people lots of other things that they could perhaps take away and engage with or, or follow up if they had, in you know interests or questions of of their own so um it doesn't really replicate you know the real thing but it was nice to to feel that I could do something yeah it's really interesting what you said about wanting um something that's been in your head and it's not sort of perceptible from an external point of view to take on a physical form to leave a mark to leave its mark on a kind of physical landscape um on a much smaller scale I also feel the same about my thesis so I'll, I'll virtually submit it but I'd quite like to see the thing printed and bound at some point would be nice um it's I think it's interesting the way you phrase that given what the book is about um this idea of kind of a deep future and a, and a new future um and I know that one strand of your research examines how literature, especially poetry, responds to the challenge of the current geological age, the deep time and the deep future. Um, I suppose my question, my first question would be what, I mean, I think there've been a lot of shifts in this field recently and, and we can talk about that. Um, but have you witnessed, I know we've only been in lockdown in a short time, but have you witnessed any interesting creative responses? I've noticed there's a lot of, um chat online um cautioning against actually the hot take um ah. you know the you know a lot of kind of fairly cynical um tweets saying things like i wonder when the next you know the, the first covid studies <laughs> yes oh, i've wow. seen those as well <laughs> the viral turn or something like that you know we yeah. do, do have a and um, I, I don't want to i don't want to be completely cynical about this there is there is perhaps an overvaluing of novelty sometimes in in maybe in the humanities mm. or um a, you know a you know a drive to find a new thing um that is you know bound up with the the, the accelerated pace of um academic research which you know is itself bound up with lots of things to do with you know commodification of knowledge and the demands of the breath and so on and and maybe one of the outcomes of this might be a slowing down of scholarship which in i think in one sense wouldn't be a bad thing if we if we uh if we perhaps choose to be a little bit more reflective um and and ask ourselves you know what what do we really want to say 
about this situation rather than publishing. I don't mean to say publishing for its sake. I know no one really does that. But, you know, maybe allowing ourselves the time to really work out what kind of intervention we want to make rather than being driven by other kinds of external forces. That could be a good one. That's really interesting. Do you think that, I mean, I know that you, this also could expose my ignorance of deep time. Um, so I apologise in advance. But one question I kind of I wanted to ask you, and it's not just about COVID-19, I think I mean our disciplines. Would we all benefit from thinking about what we do, from thinking about the way we work with an awareness that there are scales of time and pace that supersede not only the kind of the pace that we you know, adopt day to day, the kind of quite frenetic publish or perish um, pace that academia requires us to take, but also just that this ho- a whole concept of time and scale and trajectories, professional or otherwise, is, is superseded by, by much bigger things and unfathomable things. Um, do you think deep time can teach us something about academia, both as an object of study and as a pace of study? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'd I, I agree with you, although I maybe flip the terms on the head slightly, um, because um, for me, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about deep time, our relationship with deep time, and particularly the, the deep future, you know, the, the, the kind of worlds that we will leave behind for those who will follow us, has really helped me to see that deep time isn't just some abstract concept or a, a distant prospect, something that really has no relation to how we live and how we experience time. You know, we inhabit the flow of deep time. I think that's true to say. We, you know, we even though we can't see the processes unfolding, um, you know, we are still living in the midst of them. Mm. Geologic processes, planetary cycles, turning, and so on. Um, but beyond that, we, you know, we're also making our mark. We're intervening um, on on the way those cycles are, are working, um, and the you know the marks that we're making on the planet, the carbon we're putting in the atmosphere, the nuclear waste that we're tr- you know hopefully going to be able to store safely so that it doesn't represent a, a threat to to generations that follow the plastic that's in the oceans and so on and so forth um we'll have a very long life we'll leave a, a lasting trace uh, it, it's projected it'll take a hundred thousand years for the last of the carbon that we've added to date from the atmosphere for example um so this this you know these marks are going to shape the world that people who have yet to be born will live in. And so there's something really quite intimate about that. I think, um, so when I said I'd turn the terms on their head slightly, what I mean is for me, deep time, thinking with deep time is very much thinking about our closeness to what might seem very different, distant and different perhaps. Um, There's a, a, a kind of reorientation of perspective involved when you, I think, try to see things from a deep time perspective, things that we might put very far from ourselves actually come very close. You know, the actions that that I take now could, you know, play their role in in shaping the kind of world that someone who is yet to be born lives in. And um, yeah, so I think we can all benefit from from that shift in perspective of, of, you know, really breaking down what we see to be distance and separation and finding the closeness the connection and the proximity that that it conceals that's a really beautiful answer um it's interesting i i come from a francophone post-colonial studies background and listening to you speak about the perspective of deep time i think that sense of the very distant or the other coming closer and being something that's that's personal 
I think we can also apply that to the kind of xenophobic othering of people that's come about through this pandemic. I mean, also in general. Yeah. Um, and I'm, it, it strikes me as interesting as well, kind of given your, I know that you also uh, came or come still from a post-colonial background. Um, I mean, I think the first question I'd want to ask is, do, do you see a relationship between deep time and post-coloniality or is that um, kind of incidental? Uh, well, um, well, what I certainly see is is a kind of um, a connection between colonial legacies and, and the Anthropocene, you know, the, the, the mm-hmm. era human that we're now said to inhabit um you know that which you know is often taken as a kind of catch-all term for this uh extraction driven growth oriented um uh world that that you know is you know is, is heading towards you know climate catastrophe i was very clear that that you know that this is another legacy of colonialism that that simply saw um uh the natural world as as a resource um that saw other cultures as expendable um that operated on this very kind of linear trajectory always working towards the next frontier always working towards the next um exhaustible um uh, line of natural resources um so i certainly do see a connection there definitely i'm the example i was thinking of specifically was um I mean, I come from a Francophone post-colonial background, as I said, where I think underlying colonial fault lines and current societal models have just been um, exposed um, for all that they are again and again. Um, There was quite a striking example of a head of intensive care at a Parisian hospital, a man called Dr. Jean-Paul Mirat, who said that... um, we asked, sorry, whether we should be doing coronavirus studies in Africa, where there are no masks, no treatments, no resuscitation, um, a bit like elsewhere for studies on AIDS is a direct quote. Um, I mean, obviously, this statement is incredibly disturbing and problematic on quite a lot of levels. Um, but it's just led me to wonder to what extent this pandemic is also part of a crisis of post-colonial pres- the post-colonial present or post-colonial realities um, yeah. in in the way that we live currently. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's 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 very astute. I mean, that, we're often told that we're in a new world um, now. There was, um, I, was Rebecca Solnit said, you know, that it, it, the impossible has already happened. We're in a new space now. Um, Aaron yeah. Duffy Roy said, you know, that the, the pandemic is a portal to somewhere new. And you know that they're writers I have huge respect for and would you know have no intention of kind of gainsaying but it's striking to me as well how much this new world looks very much like the old one um in terms of who is vulnerable who's exposed um where injustice resides I mean I, I was reading a few days ago I'm sure you might have seen this before and and, and others who are listening as well that you know the if you're a person of colour in the United States, you are vastly more at risk. And the, the figures are astonishing. I mean, something yeah. 70 or 80 percent of the deaths in cities like New Orleans and Chicago um, are, are, are people of colour. And yeah. uh, so it's there in some ways, you know, this is not this is not a new world. This is the old world. Absolutely rampant. Um, the challenge is to sort of is find those glimpses of, of the new um, and, and really take hold of them and work out what they mean and how we can replicate them on a more kind of sustainable basis, I think. Yeah. 
there are if we take an optimistic perspective have you seen any models of resistance creative or otherwise i mean you mentioned some some beautiful writers um two of my favorites actually but have you have you seen any responses um or any models of resistance that have given you hope or given you cause to be optimistic I think what gives me cause to be optimistic is the fact that you know the the, the pandemic has um, really illustrated the value of individual action. It's been a big question for a long time, hasn't it? You know, does it make any difference whether I, you know, um, give up eating meat or curtail my flights, you know, mm. or, or stop using single-use plastic? You know, it, it's system change we need, and of course we do need system change. But what we've seen now is individual action on a mass scale having a, a transformative effect um and you know it's been messy it's been um distressing as well but we you know i, I think we've also seen that um you know we can we can do small things um ourselves and that be a meaningful part of, of much wider action so rather than look to you know um I don't know, in, you know, projects or artworks um, or, or initiatives. I'm, I'm most inspired by the fact that it's it's demonstrated that you know, small scale action can be scaled up, which I think is is um, is most important going forward. You touched on a really interesting point, and I think that this loops back to to your research in your field of interest. I think the main scepticism, as you rightly identified, um, that a lot of people have of, say, reducing meat or plastic or whatever it be, is that an individual on a global scale can't make a difference or can't make as much of a difference to you know, the overall environmental state and health of the planet. And I suppose my question would be, what do you think the trickle down effect of individual action can be? That's a really broad question. I'm sorry, um, and it's, it's not very helpful. I mean, more, you know, I suppose, can there be a trickle down? That's a better way of putting it. Can there be a trickle down effect of individual action? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Um, I mean, it 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 shapes communities. Um, it can it can direct political will um, yeah. in the right circumstances. It engages us ethically with these questions i think as well it brings them home in in a very simple sense you know and that's been one of the disorienting things about the virus um is that sense you know unless you've had a positive test or been so ill that there's no ambiguity none of us are really sure whether we've had it or not whether we've got it or not mm. even this kind of dual state and that i think is a profoundly ethical one because we always have to um, I think if we're being um, conscientious, imagine ourselves ill and act accordingly. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think I think there's so it's, it kind of brings home the question, and 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 that's again the value of individual action. I think is it is it makes it personal, invests us in it. Um, of course, you know, just you know, this does need to, to lead then to system change. It's it's all very well. Um, us in, you know not flying but i think flights account for uh, what is it it's it's less than five percent of global emissions it's maybe more like two or three and in fact you know when we saw all those photographs of you know the 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 emissions emissions cloud lifting from mainland china and so on that was actually the cessation of heavy industry that did mm. that so you know it, it's it's not enough to say that you know on its own individual 
consumer choices can make the difference but you know we're also political communities and i think we can we can we can drive from this point um towards more meaningful change certainly it's um it, you just made me think of another article i read about the privilege of pandemic um that yeah. i think alexandra ocasio cortez commented on in relation to um areas like the bronx in new york um and you know obviously areas in the uk as well where being able to quarantine um is a privilege and it's just an, yeah. a luxury that's not affordable to people just in the same way that you know choosing to or being able to live a kind of zero waste or plastic free or vegan lifestyle is not a choice that is tangibly practically afforded to to many people um and again this is a very big open question that is not easy to answer but you know i think would you agree that with with this pandemic we also kind of have to massively reevaluate our own privilege and look at ways of offsetting it or at least kind of trickling down the socioeconomic means that afford us the ability to, to you know to be quarantined and to make those those decisions yeah absolutely i mean it's it's really illustrated how these kind of equalities are 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 um, damaging to people's mental health uh, but yeah. but you know you know if, if you're isolating alone Yep. Or on the on the in a fifth floor flat with you know, small children um, yep. that you know that, that I think again the costs are becoming a lot more visible yep uh, but but also you know as you say you know the the disparity in exposure is is galling um, and yeah I think we can't forget that although you know history doesn't give us many examples to 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 be you know buoyant about um i was the, the last class that i did um online before the end of the semester we looked at um we looked at olivia lang's crudo which isn't a kind of it's a kind of social media novel it's just yeah. someone who's always checking twitter and always responding to the news and it's it's sort of set in um the months in the middle of the year in in 2017 i think and it's yeah, it's yeah, yeah, of course, Brexit. It's full of references to Grenfell Tower. Yes. Um, and the 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 day I was doing a class online about it, there was again there was there was an item in the news about how still there were buildings clad in this deadly material. So you know, um, where am I going with this? I suppose you know we've seen that we've we've had this kind of um, vulnerability, you know, made completely plain before and an action hasn't been taken i mean i suppose that you know the thing to say is we can't afford to let that lesson go again yeah yeah um it's interesting you just made me think of vulnerability and the way judith butler describes it as something that's inherent to public life and the knowledge that my life can be expunged at will um at the will of another or that another, you know, another person's life could be conversely expunged through mine. I think it, it, it's that there needs to be, at least seems from what you're saying, the re a response has to be centred on vulnerability and care um, and kind of reworking that back into the fabric of, of how we live. Um, at least <laughs> it would be a good start. Um, you mentioned Crudo by Olivier Lang, which I would thoroughly recommend if people haven't read it. Uh, it's excellent. 
Um, we're also asking on a slightly lighter note, um, any books people have been enjoying reading, any podcast recommendations, films, documentaries? I mean, your book, obviously, would be top of the list of things we'd recommend. Um, can you buy it online still? You can. Yeah, you can. You can get it. And, you know, please do. You know, if you if you are minded to buy it, consider buying it from an independent bookshop yes, as well. And yes. Light, lighthouse yes. books are very happy to deliver, um, for example. Other independent bookshops are available. Lighthouse have got an excellent book uh i think you can you can buy a book for someone else and have it delivered to them as well they've got some really really good initiatives in place Um, so they're not um you know they're not uh endangering key workers that way um but you know they're they're, you know they're they're fantastic um and a really vital part of our community i think so please do support but you're looking for book recommendations apart from my crikey (laughs) um (laughs) Uh, well, I mean, it, it, yeah, reading's reading's been a solace, um, but it, it, I'll admit, you know, it's not always easy to concentrate. Um, but yeah. I have really enjoyed as, as something that is a real tonic and antidote to to the times. Uh, it's a book called Greenery by Tim D. Mm-hmm. Uh, subtitle is Journeys in in Spring, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book about the spring, about the return of new life, um, uh, about about what green means to us um and it's it's a book that's full of life and joy and um and the prose is just uh, astonishing beautiful um so I'd, I'd highly recommend that but if anyone's after something that's maybe also kind of nourishing and uplifting but but maybe uh also perhaps engaged with questions of, of care I, i've been reading a lot of john Berger's essays and, and also reread his short book a fortunate man which is a, um, I guess, it's more like a long essay, really, about a country doctor in the mid 1960s. Someone that that Berger spent six weeks living with and observing him in his community, and it's just incredible um, because the, the the doctor John Sassel is uh, intent on on treating every patient as a as a as a total person, you know, not just mm-hmm. as a patient. And it's a it's a it's just the most uh, heartwarming, uplifting. Um, thought-provoking to you know complete the trio of cliches um this on on care and on um how we you know we care by paying attention and you know and john berger is just the most incredible writer as well so Mm. yeah whether you want to step out of the pandemic or maybe just step towards it slightly I'd, i'd recommend either of those books Oh, thank you. That's a lovely, lovely response. And I love that idea as well. If you if you can't go out into greenery, maybe retreating inside a book or somewhere that's yeah, that's safe but still just as full of life. And so that's a lovely, lovely image and a really nice possibility. We'll try and find a way to link um to those texts if people are interested in buying them. Um uh, do you listen to podcasts? Do you like podcasts? Do, yeah. <laughs> Any recommendations other than this, obviously? Well, I, I mean, I, 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 one I listen to a lot is called Literary Friction, which is mm-hmm. um, it usually features um, uh, an author being interviewed. But there's lots of kind of book chat around it. Um, um, you know, it's always a good place to pick up new recommendations. The most recent um, episode had Jenny Offill talking okay. about that. Yeah, and Jenny Offill is just incredible and everyone's time. Uh, so yeah, there's a third recommendation. If you want if you want a brilliant novel of the moment, then do check out Weather. But yeah, I'd certainly recommend Literary Literary Friction is, okay. is a really great podcast. 
that's actually one of the few podcasts I do not subscribe to so I'll have to go and have a listen and check it out um thank you so 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 much for for those recommendations um and just I think as a final one obviously the title of this podcast is moving beyond the books and we're challenging all of our listeners and all of our participants to think about kind of what what we can learn um, by moving beyond the confines of our traditional academic practice. So I guess the question would be, and you might have answered this already, I might go back through editing and find that you've you've answered this for me. But what do you think you've you've learned? What's the main thing you've learned from moving beyond how you were working before in this in this new normal? Um, I think I've learned there's an important question to ask and I don't think I've got any more than the question to offer at the moment I don't have to it but it's really shown to me that it's important that we ask ourselves what really matters yeah Um, you know a lot of the things that we we do in the course of our working life we 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 do maybe because they're habit or because we've always done them and and I'm not saying I want to burn it all down maybe I do I don't know (laughs) but I mean, a lot of things have been stripped back. A lot of, you know, a lot of what we would do, we can't. And 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 it's good, I think, to reflect on, you know, what is most important. What's 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 the essence of this job, and you know, what do I want to hang on to, um, and and what perhaps could we afford to do differently or otherwise, or maybe not at all. So, I, I think it, it's a question that I, I I need to spend more time with. But certainly, that's what's come to me. Thank you. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me, David. I really appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Okay, I'm just going to try and figure out how to turn this off. Nope.